BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today I enlisted Dr. Kristen Oliver to talk to us about COVID-19 vaccine and kids, teenagers who have received the vaccine. And for those of you who are debating the questions that you've had and some questions about kids who may be eligible later this year. So I wanted to address some of the things that are top of mind, some of the fears that people have about giving this vaccine to their kids, and some of the hope for what's to come. I asked Dr. Kristen Oliver because she's a pediatrician and public health specialist. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Oliver's scholarly and research interests focus on vaccination. She represents the American Academy of Pediatrics on the HPV Vaccination Roundtable. Dr. Oliver has extensive experience working in public health and policy agencies, and she's conducted projects with the CDC, the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, and UNICEF. Dr. Oliver is a trusted resource, and I'm really happy to be able to share her knowledge with you. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. I really appreciate your open minds. And if you want to reach out to me, you can DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast on Instagram. Thank you for listening. Let's just open with, I got so many questions from parents parents of babies who are wondering if they're breastfeeding, if their infants will get some of the immune response. I got questions about boys and data or information that is making parents nervous about heart health. I got questions about fertility and teenage girls, everything that you probably have been asked about yeah. Got questions in droves. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you about are what are the myths about the vaccine? Where do they come from? And is there anything that you could say that explains the science so that parents can feel more comfortable understanding or separating myth from reality? Right. Great questions. I mean, I think 
when I think about myths, I generally don't like to talk specifically about the myths because you often reinforce them more than you do potentially dispel people um, from no longer believing in them. Right. So in, I think in general, part of the problem is there's just so much information, right? There's a ton of information and, you know, even the accurate information, there's too much of for everyone to sift through. And it's constantly changing as we're learning more and as new science comes in and as the pand- you know, it's pandemic changes. So that's just difficult for anyone to sort through. There's also a certain amount of this misinformation that's just wrong, but then gets propagated and circulated, especially mm-hmm. on social media. And then there's this idea of disinformation, where there are groups that are deliberately out there targeting, in particular, marginalized communities, trying to give them you know, false information take people to, to, to not take the vaccine. Some of this is from groups that have always been anti-vax and some of it uh, is from you know other groups that for in, for some reason have decided that this may be a new way to define more people to, to buy into whatever their particular ideology happens to be. And so I think the best thing to do in that situation is stick to a couple sources that you trust. Um, and I always recommend, I'm biased, but I always recommend people go to their pediatrician as one of those sources, <laughs> right? It is our job to stay up to date on all of this. It's not a parent's job necessarily. You guys are doing uh, you know, so many other things to keep your kids uh, healthy and happy that the pediatrician, you know, follow all of this stuff in closely and, and and feel comfortable asking any of those questions to your pediatrician. Um, you know, we're happy to talk to you about it and, and, and understand, understand where those concerns are coming from and they can help sort out the fact from the fiction. So how do we address this? I mean, I don't want to perpetuate the myth by bringing up fertility. No, that's okay. I'm happy to talk about specific ones, though. But that, but, but I think it's so pervasive as like something that stopped people from feeling like it was okay to give their, or at least it gave people pause. And I really think it's important to clarify why that happened, like why people started thinking about that as a problem and what in fact the science says. So for which particular myth are you talking? So in this case, parents were hesitant to give their either daughters who had not yet gone through menses or they had, but they still thought, well, what if this interrupts their fertility in the future? Yeah. No, this is a the really frequently asked question and a frequently asked concern for a lot of people. So it originated from a, a scientist in Germany who thought that the that there was a very close link between the proteins that were involved in the spike protein on the coronavirus. That is what the vaccine it creates an antibody response to, and, a, and a, another protein that's involved in placental attachment in pregnancy. The reality is that those two proteins are not similar at all. Essentially, there's a few a handful of little parts of them that are similar, but not nearly enough that they that they would interact with each other. So, unfortunately, that little bit of information was taken and just exploded just without any evidence. And in fact, it's just, you know, not not real that there could then be a a resulting issue around fertility, specifically looking, you know, with pregnancy. It's interesting. There's no I can't think of any reason, any vaccine that could cause any relationship to a change in in menstrual cycles or a change or a change rather in in pubertal development. Um, So I I don't think that's necessarily tied to any specific misinformation out there. Just, you know, something that people are concerned about with their young daughters, understandably so. 
Um, but there's n- there's no scientific link there um, between puberty and, and, and later stage fertility and the vaccine or any other vaccines. This is something, you know, I, a lot of my work was around HPV vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was something that, you know, a myth that was out there for HPV vaccine as well. There's been lots and lots of studies since then, specifically looking at fertility around the HPV vaccine. Again, no, no relationship between getting the vaccine and having trouble getting getting pregnant later on or any anything to do with um, puberty. And so I think that knowing that with HPV vaccine, it makes is certainly reassuring for other vaccines as well. Um, and so I'm not surprised to see this myth out there. I think it, it comes back ever and we'll see it. You know, next time there's another new vaccine, we'll see it again. Mm-hmm. Um, people who deliberately put misinformation out there know the buttons to push, right? And, and that's this a this huge is a, button. It's right. a huge button for women. It's a huge button for parents. Um, and the, and and you have, sometimes so sometimes in looking at this information, you have to say what are the motives for some of these people that are perpetuating this? And some people are just concerned. You know, they got it second, third hand. There's some people out there who are who are doing it deliberately, unfortunately. I would say that, you know, we know that COVID infection can certainly have a big impact on mom and baby when mom is pregnant as well. So that's what we're really, really trying to avoid. So it's much more important to make sure that you protect yourself from the actual virus. Not, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the most obvious answer to that is to get vaccinated. Now, for, for those who have children under the age of 12, this was a question that came up quite a bit. If your child is a very big 11-year-old, let's say, and the CVS isn't asking for ID, is it okay to bring your child in to get vaccinated earlier? Yeah, I appreciate that the parents are so pro excited about this vaccine and really do want to protect their children as much as they can to think about, you know, how we can get in there a little bit earlier. I'd say, you know, two things. One is it's not FDA approved for anyone um, under the age of 12. So I wouldn't recommend going ahead and doing that. Um, you know, those studies are still pending. And what we often say in pediatrics is kids aren't just little adults, right? It's just, it's not just about their size. So if you have a slightly bigger 11-year-old, um, are they, mm-hmm. you know, the same as a slightly smaller 12 year old, um, there's different things that are going on in terms of, again, you know, development. And so it's better to wait um, and see what the trials show us from that age group. There may be a different vaccine dose for that age group that's more appropriate. And so hopefully it will not be too much longer. It's last I heard, it sounds like sometime in the fall or, you know, later in the, we'll have some of the initial results out from those age groups and maybe late 2021, early 2022 for, for those kids who unfortunately are going to have to wait a little longer. And is there a certain age at which there's no reason to worry at all about a child that's so young that they are unlikely to transmit and they are unlikely to have negative effects and so they don't even need to think about the vaccine? Or is it the goal that everybody can get vaccinated like we do with many illnesses that we're trying to eradicate? At the moment, with, and the goal is, is is everybody, when we safely have the data that shows that the vaccine is safe and effective in those different age groups, right? So yes, we know that children um, are less likely to get severe disease and the younger ones are less likely to get hospitalized or to die, but they still get it and they still get, still get hospitalized and they still can die. And so if we can, if we have the vaccine that can prevent that, you're still much better off uh, vaccinating than waiting to see what would happen um, if your child gets infected. And as everyone's talking about, you know, with the new variants, in particular Delta being more infectious, even if we don't necessarily know it, that it's more severe, that like that increases the chance of anybody, including children, getting infected. And then you'll see more kids who end up getting hospitalized as a result of more infections. And so certainly as we as we, you know, see what happens with that variant in the United States, I think we'll be more and more interested in continuing to protect the younger age groups when we can. Just to piggyback off that. 
and this is a little out of the scope of what we were going to talk about, but I did get a lot of questions about kids who are too young to be vaccinated in a more open world where people are unmasked and if parents should continue to have their children wear masks indoors if they aren't sure of other people's vaccination status. Right. I think, again, thinking about what's going on in your local community and where you are and the risk factors for the other people around and, and your children as well. Um, so certainly anything outside at this point, I'm very I'm comfortable with with everyone being unmasked, um, including mm-hmm. the children. Um, I think the, the, the data is pretty much there for really low chance of transmission. If you're expecting to be in really close contact um, for long periods of time with larger groups, then I think masking, you know, the children does make sense. Depending again on transmission levels in your local community. Parenting is full of twists and turns and ups and downs. And there's a brand new podcast that captures all of that excitement. It's called Stroller Coaster. Stroller Coaster is hosted by Faith Saley, Emmy Award winning host from CBS Sunday Morning and NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's for parents of kids of all ages, and it's smart, fun, and super informative. Stroller Coaster has extraordinary guests with inspirational real-life stories, experts who provide valuable, innovative parenting tips, and those funny moments every parent can relate to. Stroller Coaster is created by Munchkin, the most loved baby lifestyle brand in the world. So fill up your cup and subscribe to Stroller Coaster, a parenting podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you guys about an awesome service called FrameBridge, FrameBridge makes it easier and more affordable than ever to frame your favorite things without ever leaving the house. You can add a gallery wall to your home office. You can send the perfect gift to mom. From art prints and diplomas to photos sitting on your phone, you can FrameBridge just about anything. And here's how it works. It could not be easier. You just go to FrameBridge.com and upload your photo or they'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. I personally take pictures of the physical pieces of art and then send them in digitally to frame. And then it's easier to clean out while still keeping the beautiful artwork that your children do. And if you really love it and want to honor it, you can frame it like I do. So you can preview your item online in dozens of frame styles and gallery wall layouts and choose your favorite, or you can get free recommendations from the designers at FrameBridge. And instead of hundreds of dollars that you would pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 plus all the shipping is free. And my listeners get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use my code HUMANS. So order online at framebridge.com, or you can actually stop by a Framebridge store to work with a designer in person if you're in New York, D.C., Atlanta, or Philly. When we moved recently, I asked both of my daughters to pick their favorite photos that give them their happy memories from their friends in New York and did a Framebridge wall for each of them. Get started today. Frame your photos or send someone the perfect gift. Go to framebridge.com and use the promo code HUMANS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code HUMANS. Framebridge.com, promo code HUMANS. Osea 
is a beautiful skincare line for your face and your skin all over your body. Remember, skin is your largest organ, so it's silly to only take care of part of it. Like, I definitely focus more on my face, but now I have these awesome Osea products to make my whole body feel silky smooth. And actually, they have an awesome product, Andaria Algae Body Oil. And I've incorporated that into my routine, and it feels so luxurious and rich, but not greasy or sticky. And the ingredients are sustainable. The packaging is clean. And you get super soft, glowy skin with Andaria Algae, Acai Pulp, and Babasu Seed Oil. Osea Silk's responsibly sourced Andaria Algae in barrels of oil for up to six months, and the result is liquid gold. It's really rich and luxurious, and it's never greasy, but it's a body oil, and it's so nice after the shower. And those little moments of self-care feel so good. (laughs) And they're also made clean, safe, vegan, cruelty-free, responsibly sourced, plant-derived. And so they're good for your skin and the planet. And I love that it's female-founded and family-operated by a mother and daughter team. How great is that? So you can try Osea risk-free for 30 days and get free shipping on orders over $50 and they send free samples with every order. Get 10% off your first order with my promo code HUMANS at oseamalibu.com. That's 10% off with the code HUMANS at oseamalibu, O-S-E-A-M-A-L-I-B-U.com. Hey guys, I'm Maddie Orlando. And I'm Lauren Orlando. As you probably guessed, we're sisters. And we're also co-hosts of the podcast, The Sister Diary. Every week, we let our listeners into real-life conversations like the ones that we have at home. We have an eight-year age gap, so we always have a different perspective on things, but that makes it pretty fun. We talk about navigating life, growing up on social media, and pretty much anything else that we find interesting. You can catch a new episode of The Sister Diary every Friday. So, okay, I want to address the issue that has come up sort of new evidence tying COVID vaccine. I don't even know if I should say it in that way about tying COVID vaccine to heart issues in youth, particularly yeah. teen boys. Can you address that more Absolutely. specifically? No, I think it's also, you know, it's somewhat important to acknowledge that, A, that there, the link seems to be there and real, right? So the especially the second dose of these mRNA vaccines and a link to myocarditis or pericarditis, which are both different, like inflammation of either the heart tissue itself or the lining around the heart, in particular in males after their second dose um, in the you know, adolescent group age 20 to 30 or so. And so the link seems real. It's incredibly, incredibly rare, um, but it's real. And that it's, you know, I wish it wasn't right. When, when the first right. news reports are sort of coming out, like, okay, well, maybe this isn't a connection. Let's wait you know, into it a little bit and see what the real data shows. And, 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 the, and looking, you know, watching the CDC um, discuss this, it, it, you know, the link is real and that I have to like, just admit like as a pediatrician, as a mom, like that's disappointing, right? I want there to be a vaccine where that's not the case. That being said, I also wish that COVID didn't affect children as much as it does, right? We like to think, I think COVID's not so serious for children, but it, but it is. And so, you know, kids get hospitalized, kids get intensive care, get admitted to intensive care units and, and, and some have 
died from COVID. And so the benefit of the vaccine still outweighs the risks in this case. And, you know, the CDC did some modeling to look at that and basically saying, let's say in, if you vaccinate a million males aged 12 to 17, and after their second dose, you were going to prevent, you know, tens of thousands of infections, thousands of hospitalizations, hundreds of ICU stays, and, and as well as many, many deaths, right? And but you will probably end up with about 40 cases of myocarditis as a result. And so, yes, there is that chance, but again, rare and still the risks of COVID are much greater than the risk from the vaccine. And in fact, the risk of getting myocarditis if you get COVID um, are, are much greater than the risk of getting it from the vaccine. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we see myocarditis, myocarditis in general happens more often um, in males of this age group anyway. Um, usually after some, half the time, we don't even know what causes it. It's probably some kind of viral infection that we never, that we didn't, that we did, that we didn't know um, they had, right? This, this is inflammation, and so the good news, I guess, is that the cases that are linked to the vaccine tend to, so far tend to be very mild, um, and so all you know, you, you know, treated. Obviously, we're in a medical setting, but treated and recovered. Shifting a little bit, what about mothers of infants who are breastfeeding exclusively? Does that in any way protect them if those mothers are vaccinated? Yeah, I think we don't know still exactly what level of protection, but yes, there are some antibodies that are going to get passed along to baby from mom's breast milk. Um, and so that should provide some level of protection. Exactly what that level is, I think we we won't. We won't know for a little while. Um, the other important thing is there was a study that came out this week and you know looked specifically at the breast milk from moms who had received the vaccine and they were not able to detect any of the actual vaccine, um, the mRNA from the vaccine in the breast milk. So the, those babies are not getting the vaccine, but they are getting the antibodies, from, which is like the perfect scenario. <laughs> it's exactly right. what you want to happen, right? And so I, I would definitely encourage breastfeeding moms to get vaccinated. And to keep breastfeeding. There's no reason, once you get vaccinated, there's no reason to stop. Um, you, can, you, know, you can continue breastfeeding and, and especially you want, you want to be able to get those antibodies. How can you explain the science behind new vaccines and long-term impact? Why are we comfortable giving a new vaccine and being confident that there aren't going to be longer-term side effects 10, 20 years down the line. I want to sort of go through how the science of this works, because sometimes, not sometimes, I think there is a, the, the fear that, oh, how could we possibly know this vaccine just came out? Right. Yep. No, completely reasonable. Um, but I think what I think about and vaccines aren't new and how the body responds and the, and the immune response to a vaccine is not new. We've been doing this for an incredibly long period of time. And we're very lucky, especially in the U.S., we've been collecting data on the safety of vaccines for a long time. And so even before these vaccines came out, the scientists and the experts in vaccinology, um, not, you know, not just the government, but from all over, said, listen, most in the history of vaccines, most of the side effects that can really be tied to a vaccine happen generally within the first six to eight weeks after vaccination. There are no long-term side effects that we've ever seen from vaccines in the past. And there's no reason to think that that would be the case with an mRNA vaccine. It's just the delivery that's different. It's not the body's response necessarily that's different. So 
anything that would happen immunologically and for from an inflammatory response or something as a result of the vaccine is really going to happen within the first, let's say, two months. Um, and so we get that data pretty quickly. And you can see here the things that we found out, you know, that the side, the really rare side effects, again, that have been linked to the COVID vaccines. Generally, those have been happening shortly after the vaccine, right? And so, in, for instance, in the, in the case with the myocarditis we discussed, that's usually within, you know, four days, certainly a week or so after the second dose of the vaccine. Similarly, I know that, you know, I don't know if we want to get into other things, but the Johnson & Johnson vaccine now seems to be, you know, again, really, really rare link to Guillain-Barre syndrome, especially in men over 50. And that happened, you know, around 40 days after vaccination. And so the idea of a long-term side effects is just incredibly unlikely for any vaccine. It is not something I worry about. I'm a worrier. <laughs> um, I worry about my kids. I worry about my patients. Um, and that's just not one of the things that keeps me up at night. Well, you know, we, we all want a physician and researcher to be a worrier so that <laughs> you know that you're covering every possible challenge, then it sort of removes the worry from, from the patient and from those of us who are benefiting from that research. So I'm very happy to hear that. I mean, I know that that's very stressful <laughs> to be in this position and also to speak to it, but it's so valuable to have a reasonable honest voice about the science behind the vaccines. And you speak about all vaccines and we certainly could give a shout out here. I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast is under the impression I'm not heavily influenced by strong science. And so is getting the COVID-19 vaccine for those for whom it's approved for 12 and up important for the child and teenager themselves, or is it for herd immunity? Great, great question. I mean, first and foremost, it is for that child or that adolescent, 100%, because we know that the risks of COVID infection are real um, and the risk of hospitalization um, are real and the risk of long-term side effects from a COVID infection are also real. And so we are 100% immunizing children because we want to protect them. Certainly, the more children that are immunized, the better, you know, the the better we are protecting the rest of the community as well. Those who cannot be immunized yet because of their age, those for whom the vaccine may not be as effective. Uh, effective, And so that's a side benefit, but that's not the primary reason that we're vaccinating children. The recommendation is not to vaccinate kids because we want to protect everyone else. It's because we want to protect children. That's really important. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. That was really helpful and clear. Is there anything else that you want to say to people? I don't want people to feel guilty about having questions or having concerns. It's all very reasonable, right? I think these questions come from a place that people are looking to absolutely do the best they can to protect their children. They've been doing this now for almost two years. It's been an incredibly long run. And I, I think I want to be able to take that fear away and be able to let people and parents understand that the vaccine is, is safe, that, you know, it is recommended. Um, I definitely recommend it. And that the you know, the fear of what could happen if your child gets COVID can then be like a burden that's taken off your shoulders if, 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 when you choose to vaccinate. Um, and sort of being able to make sure to focus on, on the benefits both to your child as well as to you, knowing that they're then protected when thinking about making this decision. And always, always, always talk to your pediatrician about any of these questions. I'm glad you said that because I do, I do think that even the most comfortable pro-science, pro-vaccine folks have had a moment of pause just thinking about this and wanting to ask questions because this is all so new for everybody. And so it's really helpful to hear from you and I really appreciate it. My pleasure, absolutely. 